I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Uh, so I'd encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15. I'll, I'll put the the verses on the screen as well, uh, but it's good for us to be using our Bibles, and I'm going to keep make it easy for you. We're going to pretty much be in Luke 15, so we don't have to shuffle around a whole bunch here this morning. So Luke 15, lost and found, is, is sort of what I've titled this here. Um, this Luke chapter 15 includes the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or we could give it different titles, the, the parable of the loving father. As, as I've been studying this, I'm growing to favor that title. This, the parable really uh, exalts the father who represents God. <clears throat> and I think that there may also be an argument to be made that these, uh, these three parables, as I've just said that, they're kind of one parable. Uh, they go together, certainly they go together, uh, but uh, well, well, you can consider that as we go through, uh, but I think they all build upon one another and, and have a cohesive message. And the theme of, of these messages, this one parable, uh, is that something's lost and we need to seek that. And then when it's returned, restored, we need to rejoice. And so in addition to thinking about uh, sheep and coins and sons, I want us all to think about how we can apply these principles to us, thinking about loving the lost, seeking the lost, uh, receiving and rejoicing as uh, those are reconciled to God. So the background here, uh, as we begin uh, this parable, we have, of course, Jesus and his ministry. He's always getting into trouble with uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders. You know, sometimes it's because he's not observing the Sabbath uh, ordinances the way that they understand them, uh, not according to the way they liked. Sometimes he's making himself out to be God. They don't like that, but of course he is God. Uh, sometimes he's associating with the wrong people, and that's what we'll see here uh, in this case. So there's always a, a reason for someone to be upset. And so let's see here in, in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 where it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we see here their prejudice. They don't, they don't get what Jesus is really about. Is he, he's eating with the sinners? Well, yes, he is. And thanks be to God that he has that association. Because who are we, Right. We are sinners, and we're recovering and getting back to be reconciled with God. We, we want that uh, relationship with Christ and with God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It, it is this, the sick. The sick are the ones that need a physician. You know, so what about us? Uh, what if we have those come in among our assembly that maybe don't, don't look like us or dress like us or act like us? behave the same way or think the same way that we do? You know, do we receive those people that are different than us, like Jesus eating 
and being with the sinners and receiving them? Or do we shun them and push them away? Well, the gospel's not for you. Well, certainly we shouldn't do that. So this introduction of that background leads us to the first part of this, the lost sheep, the first of these three major sections of this parable. So verse four, we see, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, one thing we're going to notice in this progression is the numbers. So here we have a hundred sheep. And later, we're going to see 10 coins and two sons. That's going to be significant. But uh, as Jesus asks this question here, he presupposes that, well, of course, everyone would leave their 99 sheep and, and go seek that one that's, that's lost. It's, it's precious. And from what I've studied, uh, 100 sheep is actually quite, quite a few for someone to have. And so this would suggest that someone's wealthy and well off. And so would therefore likely have uh, perhaps other, an other shepherd there. Uh, one of the things I've thought about, well, well, maybe if you left these 99, then they would all be, you know, wandering off like the other one. You're not there to tend to them. So I think that's part of what we'd understand. And maybe even neighbors and other, other flocks from other neighbors, they would be there to kind of help recover for each other. Of course, the model in the church, right? How, are we to have one shepherd, one pastor, or, or a multiplicity of elders, of course? So that might be part of the idea here. So uh, it's important. We don't just care. Oh, whatever. That one sheep left. Well, too bad. No, that's important. That's what the shepherd's job is, is to take care of the sheep. So you guys stay here and help them. And we're going to go and I'm going to go and help find this lost sheep is the idea here. Precious, precious sheep. In verse five. And when he found it, found this lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Is joyous to find that which is lost. And the owner loves the sheep, or the, the shepherd may not even be the owner, depending on the relationships there, but that sheep has value. Even develop relationships working with animals, and quite frankly, a sheep can be cute. And, and uh, even thinking back to 2 Samuel 12, you know, the, the, the parable that Nathan used to convict David was about this, this poor man with this one ewe lamb that he raised and, and kept seeming seeming like a like a pet in that instance so we recognize the preciousness of the, of the sheep that we're supposed to recognize here from the parable but verse six and when he comes home having found this sheep he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for i have found my sheep that was lost so good news we, we would celebrate with with this great uh, you know, what had been sort of somewhat of a disaster, and now it's been reconciled. Uh, we've, we've found the sheep that was lost, you know, and maybe, maybe we don't have sheep in this, you know, agricultural things, depending on some of us, maybe our farmers or have worked on a farm, but uh, maybe relating it to our culture. Maybe you manage a fleet of cars, you know, and you have a hundred cars that you're the manager of, and one of them is fell off the truck or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you wouldn't just not care about that. That's a, that's a pretty important thing. Uh, or, you know, working in IT, maybe in, with a classroom setting, you have this cart full of uh, iPads and there's a hundred iPads in there. And those are pretty expensive. And if one of them went missing, that would be something to, to work on resolving. 
And when you find that, hey, we've got, we've restored this. Everything's back the way it ought to be. And we would rejoice in that. Verse seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we see Jesus makes the application now. It's not really about sheep or iPads or whatever. It's spiritual. We're thinking about lost sinners. These principles apply uh, to, to people who have fallen away from God and we need to have reconciled. There's joy in heaven when these things are reconciled, when people are brought back to God. You know, again, thinking about uh, everyday things in our life or in our, and maybe in the news, you know, we don't have a, a party because our house didn't collapse. Well, we should be thankful, right? That's, that would be bad if our house collapsed, but we don't recognize that as some sort of uh, exciting event that it didn't collapse. We rejoice and celebrate when, when people are rescued from, from safety. You know, the recent collapse down in Miami, and there was, I believe, one survivor that was pulled out of that. Unfortunately, not more. We were looking for more. We wanted to rejoice in that, you know, and people getting out of Afghanistan. Maybe not everyone's going to get out, but we're thankful for those that do. We rejoice in those things. And the same thing with, with sinners. We want to be thankful when someone is in that danger of eternal damnation, that they be reconciled to God. So the next of our three is the lost coin portion here. We talked about the, the lost sheep. You know, it started out, what man of you having the sheep? And how, here with the lost coin, we're going to talk about what woman with the coin. And so it uh, seems like perhaps a, a modern convention almost that, that Luke likes to inc include women in his portrayal of all the things that Jesus said in his account, his gospel. So we have here in verse 8. Or what woman? Having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So again, remember the 100 sheep and now the, the 10 coins. So imagining the, the, the houses of that time, perhaps a dirt floor or cobblestone floor and, you know, coin could kind of get jammed in there and might have a hard time finding that. And, and this, this coin in this cultural context perhaps represented the dowry of this woman uh, from when she had originally been married, sort of a savings account. It could have represented an idea of jewelry, something precious to her. Um, you know, as far as, as far as the actual monetary value of this coin that under consideration here, it's, it's referred to as a drachma, or we talk sometimes about a denarius in and we often equate that to a, a day's wages. And of course, we think today we all, we all have different jobs and different rates of pay. And what does that even mean? So I, I tried to put that in context. I took the average salary and uh, divided it out and, and thinking about what would someone make in a day on average. It'd be about $216 is what I came up with. So if you dropped a couple hundred dollar bills in your, in your floor and you realized that you would probably be concerned to pick those up. Um, and again, besides just the monetary value, that seems like there's probably some 
some emotional value to this, like maybe like a lost wedding ring kind of idea um, or some practical value. And if you lost your keys, you know, there's different things we lose and we get pretty excited to find those things. Verse nine, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. It's exciting. You find the thing you're all worked up about. It's going to be problems to not have that. Uh, and then you find it. But of course, is the story about money? Uh, of course, the story is not about money. And the verse, next verse tells us that. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who, who repents. So we kind of have this refrain on both of these two sections so far to bring it back to the application. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. It's not about coins or sheep or wedding rings or whatever. It's, it's spiritual. It's about lost sinners being reconciled to God. The angels of God rejoice when a sinner repents. Do we? People are much more precious than animals or coins. Do we let our prejudice get in the way of loving others and seeing every individual person for the precious person that they are in God's sight? So this all culminates then in the, the lost son or the, or the loving father. Jesus prepared his hearers' minds with these first two parts of the parable. You know, of course we want to recover the lost sheep, and, and who wouldn't want to seek that lost coin, especially as we put it into today's dollars? You, yeah, you want to get that. Those things are valuable. But how much more a lost son? Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And remember, the hundred sheep, the ten coins, and now here, the, the smaller amount, this, just the two sons, the most rare numerically. And you think of animals, money versus family, you know, most precious in terms of class. We would value our family over these possessions if we have our head on straight, certainly. And this would be a great offense to the father for the son to ask this for his inheritance. You know, normally that would happen when the father would pass away. The son is rejecting his father. He's rejecting his family. He's rejecting the, the land promises and everything that goes with his faith. He's rejecting God. And he's basically telling his father, just die already. Give me the money. I, want to, I just want to do what I want to do. And unfortunately, we maybe have seen attitudes like that. Maybe we've even had attitudes like that in our youth, in our foolish youth. Hopefully we're, we're not like that. But the father accommodates this unusual request. You know, we think about the way that uh, inheritance works for this culture that we're looking at. In, in Deuteronomy 21, 17, we get a sense of how that would work, that the, that the firstborn would get a double portion. And uh, so if there were 10 sons, 
there would be 11 portions that it's chopped up into. And then the oldest son would get two of those 11 portions. And then each of the other sons would get a single portion. But here with just the two sons, the, the first son would, would get the double portion, which would amount to two thirds of the property. And then the younger son would get one third. Maybe that's part of the jealousy behind this, you know, this younger son. Well, I'm only going to get a third of it anyway or something. Um, but there's this, you know, thought of the, of the land promise that, that God had and, and the people of Israel were to re retain that land as an eternal inheritance and to just throw it away. It's flying in the face of what he ought to be doing. Because it seems that he's, as we go through the story, he seems to just have sold all this and just gotten money out of it rather than getting the land and using it. He's rejecting God and rejecting his family. And he's also foolish because the land is the source of income ongoing from the, uh, the way God blesses the land through crops and, and the, far, the farming and all of that is where they make their money. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger, son, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So it's getting away from his family and this far country. He's getting away from the nation. It seems that he's going to the Gentiles. He's, he's just abandoning his faith altogether. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. He's flat broke. He spent all his money, and that's all he had. He was foolish because the land was the source of wealth, and he gave that up, converted it to cash, and just wasted it all. You might say he killed the golden goose that laid the golden egg. No more golden eggs for you. Uh, it's kind of like you think, and maybe in, in our situations with um, our careers, we typically will have a retirement plan or maybe a, a fund for that. And, you know, that's intended for as we grow older to have funds to use in our, in our older age after we've uh, quit our job and, and all of that retirement. But if we just take all that money out, hey, that's a lot of money in there and spend it on vacations and stupid stuff. And then we don't have any money. Well, that's very foolish. But it gets worse for this guy. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He had to feed the pigs. So, of course, that might not be something any of us would, would care to do. But as a Jewish person and pigs being unclean, this is uh, emphasized as something very negative for him to be doing. Now, if this, if this story was a parable, well, it is a parable. If it was a fable, uh, sort of like Aesop's fables or teaching you a lesson, this would be the end. Here's the lesson. There's this stupid, wicked son, and, and it serves him right. That look, look what happened to him, and let it, that be a lesson to you, or you'll find yourself in a similar predicament. This is what he deserves. He, he wished, wished his father dead. He's running off. Uh, squandering his money, and there you go. But of course, that's not uh, 
that's not what this is. This isn't a fable just to make a story, to make a, a lesson of what not to do. It's not the simple, it's not that simple. Verse 17, it goes on. The story isn't over. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And here we see the seeds of repentance. He's, he's recognized what he's done is wrong. And he's having some more appropriate thoughts now, humbling himself. But we see those seeds of repentance bear fruit. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the son has come back. He's being reconciled with his father. His, his father, again, I would suggest, maybe we think of this as the parable of the loving father. He's been watching for him because he saw him from a long way off. He must sort of implies that he's been watching for him. He has compassion. And he even ran. And that's uh, maybe a, not such a big deal in our culture, but it's said that uh, uh, the man of the house in those days was, was honorable and he was stately and he was not to be just running around like that. And so it would be very uh, dishonorable would be the perception that he's, he's running. Well, that's ridiculous. He shouldn't be running. He doesn't care about that. He breaks those social norms and he's, he's running because he loves his son. He embraces him, kisses him. The father is the true hero of this. He's outstanding in his goodness. And of course he represents God. The next verse, and the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's, he's confessing. He has contrition. He's saying that he's sinned. He's not worthy to be a son. But remember the rest of his speech, make me a servant and all that. Well, you don't, you don't ever hear that because the father cuts him off. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. So the father just cuts off the rest of the son's speech here and just lavishes forgiveness upon the son. This goes beyond mere hospitality where uh, you, you welcome strangers in and that sort of thing. He gives him this, this not just the robe, but the best robe. Gives him a ring and, and shoes, which, again, the significance of that, the servants wouldn't have shoes, but, the, but the, the family and the sons would have shoes. And so to give him the shoes is part of the symbol of restoring him to sonship. There's a fattened calf. The father's been waiting, watching and waiting, preparing for his son to return. 
And he explains, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And so we see those echoes from all three of these parables, right? There's this, uh, the lost and the found. The son had been dead to him, but now he's alive, had been lost and is found. So we will celebrate. Now I'm going to jump back to verse 10. We don't have quite the same uh, refrain that we have from the first two parts of this. But this seems to be something that our, the hearers would have been ringing in their ears. But I've kind of slowed this down <laughs> as I've talked about it. So let me bring your mind back to verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's part of the message. That is the message of, of all of these pieces of this parable. The spiritual application. It applies even more here as we think about not just uh, animals or money, but the sun. And we, as we apply that to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have lost, fallen away, or even those who have not never, those who have never named Christ, we would want to bring them reconciled to God. But then the parallels to those first two parts sort of break down here. This, this third part, this part with this, the uh, lost son would be completed if it matched the other two, because the son's found now, right? But Jesus hears would all have agreed with everything said thus far. Yes, things that are lost are, are good to have found, and we rejoice in that. But there's more. There's more to this parable. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. You know, this, this older son, he's dishonoring his father by not going in. You know, why should I rejoice that my worthless brother came back? Good riddance when he left. He was so disrespectful and He's jealous of me or whatever, and now he's back. And why should we be happy about that? Seems to be his attitude here. He answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. It's ironic that this older son is bragging about how good he is while he is simultaneously disrespecting his father by not participating in what his father is, is uh, setting up there for the younger son. And he's painting his brother in the worst possible light. <clears throat> It's only from the brother here that we learn these details about the harlots, true or not. Of course, this is a parable. It's not necessarily a, 
a true story anyway. It's something Jesus brought up, but as it's portrayed, we didn't have those details. And, and this brother is just uh, emphasizing the bad. We're trying to be reconciled and get things worked out. But the brother is sabotaging it. And the father replies here. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, this, this older son already owned everything, quite literally. He received two-thirds of the inheritance at the beginning of, of the story there. <clears throat> but the but the father is explaining that your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's found. You should be happy too. And the, the parable ends there. We're kind of left with some questions. You know, well, did the older brother repent then? Was he persuaded by his father in treating him here? Or did he leave in a huff? <laughs> like Kind of like the younger brother had done at the beginning you know we just we, we don't have the answers to that but we might go back to one of our refrain verses from, from verse seven just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance So now the older son needs to repent, but does he? Can we see, you know, certainly we can see the value in earthly possessions with the, the sheep and the coins, and hopefully we can see the value in people, but, but maybe here as this older brother didn't. Do we fall prey to that temptation sometimes with jealousy, prejudice, hate, or pride or, or self-centeredness? Do we let those things cloud our vision and to not see things the way God sees things. So thinking about the immediate context here, as we've set it up from the beginning, Jesus is, is here with these scribes and Pharisees grumping about him meeting with the sinners, right? They didn't like that. So they are the grumpy older brother. They're not happy with Jesus receiving sinners who need to be reconciled to God. So just like that older brother being jealous of the younger brother, the scribes and Pharisees were jealous of the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners of whatever sort who were coming and getting their lives right with God. But perhaps in the, you know, Luke wrote this sometime later, so perhaps for his readers, so thinking about the hearers of Jesus, but now thinking about the readers who Luke was writing to, the church was established, of course, and then the, some conflicts between Jews and Gentiles, because the Gentiles were brought in. And the, the Jewish people oftentimes didn't like that. And so that may be another example, another application of, of these principles. And thinking about our own context. You know, that we have perhaps a new truth seeker coming even to our assemblies 
or a new believer, someone who's recently converted, and maybe they're rough around the edges. Or perhaps a brother or a sister who's, who's left, kind of like the prodigal son. They've left the father to just do whatever they want. You know, do we, do we seek them? Do we care? Do we watch for them to return and pray about that? And if someone in, in that situation were to repent, do we receive them and rejoice as the father does and, and as we ought? You know, the father, the father entreats the older son to love the other brother, the younger brother. Are we persuaded? Do we love others as we should? You know, or do we perhaps get into our holy huddle and, and maybe be uh, exclusive? Are we being conformed to the image of his son to be more like the father? It's Romans 8, 29 alludes to. So if there are those who need to be reconciled to God, perhaps in some situation like the the younger son who's gone away and made a spiritual disaster of your life. The father wants you to return. And as we are trying to be like the father and have that same loving heart, we want you to return. Or perhaps you've never been part of Christ. Well, the gospel is for all. Everyone should be reconciled to God. We want you to be saved as well. We can help you study with you, pray with you. We can uh, baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what is appropriate for you at this time. So whatever you need, we invite you to be reconciled to God. And you have an opportunity here as we stand in the sing the song to make that known. I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.